here's a topic nobody likes to talk about, catatonia. Catatonia is a neuropsychiatric condition that affects both behavior and motor function and results in unresponsiveness in someone who appears otherwise to be awake. It's sometimes referred to as catatonic syndrome because there isn't just one thing associated with catatonia or things that appear separately from each other, but like a collection of things that appear together at the same time, like a syndrome. These specific signs and symptoms do not vary regardless of the underlying reason for catatonia. So what are the symptoms? Well, according to the DSM-5, these are agitation, which someone acts upset or irritable, catalepsy, when the person holds a position in which someone places them. So like, so like a doll, right? You would put someone in the same position and then they would just stay there. You have to move them around to make them take on a new pose. Echolalia, which is when a person echoes the sounds that someone else makes. Echoapraxia, when someone mimics or mirrors someone else's movements. Grimacing, which is holding the same facial expression, usually with stiff or tense facial muscles. And sometimes this can take the form of smiling in inappropriate contexts. Mannerisms, when a person acts out motions or movements that could be normal, but does them in like an exaggerated or an unusual way. Mutism, when a person is totally quiet, but doesn't have any other condition like minimal language or autism or aphasia. So this could be temporary or something that appeared recently. Posturing, when a person holds that specific position, which would be uncomfortable to people who aren't catatonic. So this is somewhat different than catalepsy because it could be a position that they take. Stereotopy, which are these repetitive movements that don't seem to have a purpose. Stupor, which is when a person is awake but doesn't respond to what's happening around them. People with catatonia often don't respond to painful stimuli. The other one is waxy flexibility. So this is when a person puts up some slight even pushback or resistance to any attempt to change their position. So assume they're in catalepsy and then you see that they're completely uncomfortable. So you try to push them back into the right position. They have this waxy flexibility when they put some pushback or resistance, but then their muscles slowly release and their limbs bend like a warm candle. So the first thing I mentioned was aggression or agitation. While most people think of catatonia as being something that means very or little or no moving at all, that's really not the case. It can also include sudden and unpredictable behavior changes like excessive or even constant movement. They can be hyperkinetic, so pacing, agitation, aggression, and violent behavior. It could also be hypokinetic, which is what people classically think of of catatonia. This is the form as if they're awake but don't react to what's happening around them. And then, of course, there's mixed, which is hyperkinetic and hypokinetic. And some people can change and switch back and forth. Now, in some cases, catatonia can be deadly. When this happens, it's known as malignant catatonia. It's when your autonomic nervous system doesn't work as it should. So this is what controls the things like heartbeat, blood pressure, breathing. When someone has malignant catatonia, they have dangerously high blood pressure and a fever, fast heart rate, they sweat, they have an unstable 
blood pressure, and they have low oxygen that can cause areas like the lips and fingernails to turn blue. This has the potential to cause death, and this means that the problem needs immediate medical care. So what does this have to do with autism? Well, there are three types of catatonia, including catatonia associated with another mental disorder, catatonia due to another medical condition, and unspecified catatonia. Although usually associated with schizophrenia and other affective disorders, catatonia can be due to or associated with a number of different disorders, including autism. It was listed as one of the top mental health challenges in a recent review published by Meng Chuan Lai at the University of Toronto, which appeared recently in Nature Human Behavior. He reported that about 10% of autistic individuals have experienced catatonia with an onset commonly in late adolescence, although I have also read the number being as high as 17%. Now, normally in autistic individuals, it's more often characterized by early signs of increased motor and speech slowness, hesitation during motor movements, reliance on other people's verbal or physical prompts, speech reduction and mutism, mental freezing and being stuck in a loop, but it also can include things like psychosis and aggression. Dr. Lai points out that catatonia should be assessed for any individual with any deterioration in movement, speech, and function. It can also come in the form of worsening of stereotypies, a new onset refusal to eat, new onset incontinence, regression in daily living activities, or exacerbation of self-injurious behavior and agitation. Remember, late adolescence. So this isn't the same regression that you would expect to see in something like Rett syndrome. He emphasized that a baseline score is needed to show if there is a decline or regression rather than a new symptom. This is important. Not everyone who is diagnosed with regression is also diagnosed with catatonia. But knowing the symptoms, I'm sure you can agree that this is a severe, intense, and dangerous behavior in people with autism. The danger comes from behaviors that emerge from catatonia, and again, if it develops into malignant catatonia. So one serious risk factor is genetics and comorbid genetic syndromes. These can include things like Down syndrome and Phelan McDermid syndrome. While catatonia has been an issue for a while, it's been an under-recognized issue, But there's thankfully been a number of new papers on the topic. One of these papers that was recently published examined over 100 people with catatonia. About half of them had a comorbid neurodevelopmental disorder. This study then ordered clinical genetic testing on those with the neurodevelopmental disorder, 48 of them. I asked one of the authors, Martine Lamy, who has both an MD and a PhD and works at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, to comment on the study. She is also one of the leads on the paper, and I asked her to explain what they did in the study and why it's so important to understand catatonia and autism. I wanna also recognize Amy Shillington, who was the lead author. Cincinnati Children's Medical Hospital provides a continuum of care across the spectrum with an inpatient department. They also have one of the only catatonia clinics in the United States. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Lamy. Dr. Lamy is also the Associate Chief of Staff in Mental Health, as well as the Associate Professor in Psychiatry at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lamy. Please explain. Many people associate this catatonia, which I've previously described, 
applies to things like Parkinson's disease and schizophrenia and Huntington's disease. They don't necessarily associate it with autism and neurodevelopmental disorders. So in your words, why is it important to study this in autism and neurodevelopmental disorders? Well, first off, I want to thank you very much for having me on today, um, because this is a topic that I feel very, very passionate about. Um, and you're right, you know, when people think about catatonia, they oftentimes think about schizophrenia. That's one of um, kind of the most common conditions within psychiatry that people think um, about this disorder um, called catatonia about. But we know from a lot of our studies that up to 15 to 20% of autistic individuals or those with other neurodevelopmental disorders um, can develop catatonia at some point throughout their lifetime. And we also know that they have significant delays in getting catatonia diagnosed because of the overlap um, of some of the symptoms um, of neurodevelopmental disorders and catatonia. Um, for example, a common feature of catatonia in a more typically developing individual is a loss of speech. Well, how do you measure that in a neurodevelopmental population where you know, they may be um, non-speaking um, and or not have that skill to begin with. And so these these um, catatonia syndromes are oftentimes significantly delayed. Unfortunately, catatonia can be a life-threatening illness. It has significant morbidity and mortality. And we know that there are significantly better outcomes if patients are diagnosed with catatonia earlier um, and get more intensive treatment early. And we have treatments that work for a good number of um, patients with these conditions. So it's not that, um, you know, a, a child or an adult, young adult might have regression due to catatonia and there's nothing we can do, right? This is something that absolutely can be treated. Um, and that's why we've taken a really particular interest in this um, within this Cincinnati Children's Continuum of Care. We see quite a lot of patients with neurodevelopmental disorders in catatonia, and we see quite a lot that have been misdiagnosed for a really, really long time. Um, and it's great to be able to offer families these treatments that they didn't know were available to them. So you, um, this was a study where you did a lot of chart review. How did you identify those with catatonia and or with and without neurodevelopmental disorders in your cohort? Absolutely. Well, you know, we, we really started with just looking at patients that we'd been working with clinically. Um, as you mentioned, we have a um, significant neurodevelopmental psychiatry continuum of care. We have about 2,700 patients that we care for annually across all of our different levels of care. Um, and really a lot of our patients we identified because we were seeing them in clinic or seeing them um, in our inpatient psychiatry neurodevelopmental unit. Um, but since any children's being a very large hospital, we have the um, uh, you know, nice um, availability of a very sophisticated electronic medical record. Um, so in addition to identifying the patients that were seen in our clinic, we looked really closely at those seen in neurology and genetics and certain other um, specialties across the Cincinnati children's system, looking for um, whether they had, you know, catatonia mentioned in any point in their chart, um, as well as, you um, you know, any mention of any kind of neurodevelopmental disorder. We identified a sample of 48 patients where um, either through kind of our own personal clinical experience working with them or, you know, very substantial um, evidence within the chart that they met criteria both for a neurodevelopmental disorder such as autism or intellectual disability um, and 
catatonia um, that was really objectively measured using a rating scale such as the Bush-Francis catatonia rating scale um, or the pediatric catatonia rating scale where we had some kind of some, you know, evidence within the chart that we were quite sure that catatonia was the underlying diagnosis. And you did, the goal was to look at the the etiology or the genetic component to this. So why though? Why do a genetic test or explore, explore a genetic component? Yep, that's a great question. So, you know, within the, the field of neurodevelopmental disorders specifically, it is standard of care to, to offer broad genetic testing to these patients and their families to look for, you know, an underlying etiology for their disorders to make sure that we're doing the right things we need to do be, be doing for treatment and to connect families to other um, support groups or things like that. Um, within catatonia, we had kind of found just by happenstance that as we were offering more sophisticated genetic testing for patients in our inpatient unit or in our neurodevelopmental psychiatry clinic, that we were finding unifying genetic diagnoses that were related to both their neurodevelopmental disorder and the catatonia and gave us some clues for potential treatments. And so I think that's where it's really important. Genetic testing, you know, is not at a point where we find a diagnosis for absolutely everyone um, yet, um, but it can provide us some really excellent clues on why something might be happening to, or to a particular patient and then what we could do to make things a little bit better. And you found some exciting genetic results. Um, do you mind explaining them or would you explain them? And then specifically um, the, the genes kind of centered around a specific neurotransmitter. If you could explain that, that would be great. Absolutely. So within the sample that we published in this study, 36 of the patients had some degree of genetic testing um, that we were able to review. Um, and we were able to find a pathogenic finding in 42% of these patients. And so what that meant is for the, those 42% of those patients, um, we found a unifying genetic um, disorder that explained their neurodevelopmental disorder or their catatonia. Um, additionally, we found variants of unknown significance or VUSs in 25% of the population. And then about 30%, we did not find a unifying gen genetic diagnosis with the testing that was done on, for that particular family and individual. Um, and when we really looked closely at the pattern of results for those that we found pathogenic um, genetic variants or one of these variants of unknown significance, many of these variants clustered around this neurotransmitter system related to GABA and glutamatergic functioning that we know is implicated in the pathophysiology of catatonia. Um, which is a really exciting finding because it helps explain why we do have high rates of catatonia within neurodevelopmental um, populations, but can help us identify maybe who might be more likely to get catatonia versus who may not based on their underlying genetic diagnosis. So with these findings, 42% of those that you tested with catatonia and a neurodevelopmental disorder ended up having a likely pathogenic or pathogenic finding. What do you recommend for clinicians and families who have um, catatonia or a neurodevelopmental disorder, or catatonia and a, a neurodevelopmental disorder? Absolutely. And so 
what I tell our families and my colleagues is that you know genetic testing for neurodevelopmental disorders has come leaps and bounds over the last several years, and we're really in, continuing to improve our ability to detect these rare genetic disorders um, with our available testing. Testing is also cheaper and more available than it used to be. There's still some barriers to getting testing, but it's not um, as challenging to get really sophisticated testing as it was maybe even five years ago. Um, and so, you know, what I would, would just tell everybody is that for any neurodevelopmental disorder, having a broad-based genetic testing as part of the workup is standard of care. Every child or adult with a neurodevelopmental disorder deserves this level of testing. Um, and um, somebody who maybe had testing five or 10 years ago probably needs updated testing because there's a lot that was not available um, back then. And we're finding quite a lot of um, you know, new unifying genetic diagnoses for patients, even though they maybe had some less sophisticated testing several years prior. The advantage of knowing about a genetic diagnosis is huge, right? First, it gives families some understanding of their child or loved one's illness um, and why something maybe happened um, to them. It also gives really um, you know, excellent clues towards what treatments may potentially be beneficial for them, as well as what to expect as a child gets older and reaches young adulthood. Many of these genetic disorders like Phelan-McDermid syndrome are associated with severe mental illness like bipolar disorder and development of catatonia. And it's really important to be able to give families that anticipatory guidance of the neuropsychiatric illness that could happen when they're teenagers or young adults. So families can be on the lookout for early signs and get early treatment, which we know improves outcomes dramatically. The other piece is that it gives families a community Right, many of these um, disorders are quite rare, but with our new, you know, technology and being able to connect to people across the world, we're able to connect families with each other who maybe have loved ones with the same or very similar disorders, so they can provide support for each other, um, especially you know when there are a lot of unknowns about their loved one's condition. Well, I couldn't say that better myself, and so. Sorry. Thank you so much for providing this summary. And uh, for those of you who are interested, I'm going to put a link to this paper in the podcast summary. And I'll also put a couple of resources there for genetic testing, including one to an organization called Global Genes, which has a concierge program that if you are struggling finding genetic testing or struggling communicating the need of genetic testing or can't find um, your patients are having problems getting insurance coverage for genetic testing, um, they are there to help. So thank you, Dr. Lemay. Thank you, I'm glad to be here today. So this worsening for, from baseline or gradual decline, how do you assess it? Dr. Lai was very, very clear that you needed to do a baseline exam. Well, of course, nobody expects that their child is gonna have catatonia. So doing a baseline catatonia exam seems a little far-fetched. Dr. Lemie mentioned something called the Bush-Francis. Huh, what is this? Luckily, though, there is guidance now in the journal The Lancet, authored by experts in the area of catatonia and neurodevelopmental disorders. The reason to compare this Bush-Francis to a baseline is so the uniqueness of each patient can be recognized. A catatonia rating scale, like the Bush-Francis, is the difference between the current score on an assessment scale and the score at baseline. 
So two measures are validated. One is the Bush-Francis catatonia rating scale, which is kind of the gold standard for diagnosing and monitoring. Basically, the, this is a 23-item questionnaire with the first 14 items being symptoms of catatonia already mentioned, like mutism, staring, posturing, grimacing, rigidity, excitement, and stereotypy. There's also something called the attenuated behavior questionnaire, which is 34 items and has a cutoff. These items are rated on a five-point scale. So the ratings go from no, never, all the way to yes, more than before, and includes things like freezing, difficulty initiating actions, motor tics, aggression, spontaneous crying or laughing, sleep problems, and unusual eye movements. As I just mentioned, what does a baseline from catatonia before symptoms present? Who does that? So the authors of the paper, otherwise known as the experts, recommend that when a patient presents for an evaluation and catatonia is suspected, clinicians should first assess the patient's current catatonia symptoms using that standardized assessment protocol. And then the score at baseline can be estimated based on information provided by the family. They recommend use of documented resources that are available, like early intervention reports, neuropsychiatric or psychoeducational testing at the time of diagnosis, developmental pediatric notes, individualized education plans. I also want to alert parents who are on this podcast or listening to this podcast to video kid tape your kids because you never know. This means families should keep medical data and these family records and notes up to date in an centralized place. I know it seems easier said than done, but this is how catatonia is diagnosed and understood. There's really no real standard guidance for what to videotape, but maybe things like birthday parties or first steps or these developmental milestones, even dance recitals, things like that. Things that show progression over time and things that show the level of skill your child is at at different ages. Well, the good news is, is that catatonia can be treatable. It doesn't always work with every treatment, but things like immunoglobulin have been tried and the benzodiazepines like Valium or Ativan have also been very helpful. In fact, benzodiazepines like Valium or Ativan are the first course of treatment. Sometimes the low doses don't always work and you have to really kind of blast them with a the higher dose. These benzodiazepines work on the GABA system, which is what Dr. Lamie mentioned in terms of the genes that are associated with catatonia in those with rare genetic disorders. Now, when benzodiazepines don't work, electroconvulsive therapy has helped, especially with the malignant catatonia, which is the one that can be deadly. So as a result, catatonia should be considered and systematically assessed for in individuals with all neurodevelopmental disorders and really focused on if you notice your child or your patient showing any sort of new developmental regression, especially during adolescence. Save those YouTube videos. I know that's challenging. I failed myself. I have three dozen memory cards shoved into a drawer waiting for them to be uploaded, but I would say keep track of those developmental milestones. As Judge Wapner from the People's Court would say, make sure you have all your receipts. It's critical to communicating symptom presentation to doctors and specialists who want to help you. And there is help for catatonia. It, does, it isn't reversed immediately, but it can be helped. Thank you for listening this week. This is going to be the first of many 
conversations we have about catatonia because this is an underrecognized and understudied issue in individuals with neurodevelopmental disorders. Thanks for listening. Thank you.